0: G'day everyone and welcome to this week's guest, Dr. Jody Richardson. Jody, how are you?
1: I'm good. I'm great. I'm really good, thank you. Good to be here with you.
0: Great stuff. Now we were just talking before we jumped on how we tried to arrange this, oh, probably over 12 months ago now. So it's great to finally have you on. Uh, these things, timing is usually exactly as it needs to be. Now we're going to talk about the work that you do specifically around, around anxiety, but before we do that, we're going to talk a bit about your story so Mm -hmm. you said before we jumped on about just that idea of grief and where that sat but there was some hopefully some uh, realizations already around that so tell us about the big moment for you where where everything changed in your life
1: yeah I will it's interesting when when I knew I was coming on to talk to you and I thought oh I don't know if Ian's going to really want to talk to me I don't know if I've really got much to contribute around grief and it's so interesting just when somebody asks you the right questions, as you did off-air, and we didn't go into depth, but just how you kind of can sometimes in hindsight more understand what you've been going through. And, and in terms of a huge turning point for me and my life, I, I'll say here and now that I live with anxiety and I can look back that I have done since I was four. Since I started PrEP, that's when my first symptoms began. But I lived with it undiagnosed for around 20 years. But I eventually got help, not because I realised I had something that was treatable. I just thought that was life and that's how everybody lived. But because yeah. I suffered with a major depressive disorder and that was really precipitated by the death of my now, well, we weren't married at the time, but my Husband now, Peter, he was my partner then, boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, hit the death of his dad. And I, with undiagnosed anxiety, it's not uncommon for the brain to eventually just go, I just can't kind of do this anymore and yeah. for things to end up sort of slowing down and for that real withdrawal and that real difficulty sort of functioning day-to-day, a lot of tears and a lot of sadness. Um, but what I think really accelerated that was the fact that Pete's dad died and we knew he was unwell and we knew that he had a, a terminal diagnosis of prostate cancer. And I really, Pete and I had already been together for some time, some years, and his dad and I just got along really, really well. A really great yeah. guy and so we had this good relationship. I was at his house a lot and it was interesting because I knew, I knew that The time was imminent for his passing. And I remember going to the hospital, actually going to the hospital just to check in on Pete and his mum because I knew they were visiting. They were visiting often and I was visiting often as well. But on this particular day, I thought, I'll just pop in. I know they're there. I'll go in and say hello, check out how they're going. And when I walked in the room, uh, Peter's dad had actually passed away and it it had only just happened. And so... I got obviously quite a shock because that was not my expectation and I hadn't had the news. And even though you are expecting something like this to happen, it's always just absolutely devastating when it finally happens. And in the aftermath of that, what I found was, and Pete doesn't mind me talking about him. I have permission to talk about him when I'm doing these sorts of things, but never said this before is that he he wasn't openly expressive with his grief, and I'm a very expressive person when it comes to emotions. So yeah. I opted not to express my emotions in Pete's company because I remember having the idea in my mind, how can I cry on his shoulder about his dad when yeah. he should be crying on my shoulder? And so I bottled it up, I bottled it up, I held on to it. I had my moments, but because we spent a huge amount of time together, and of course when I was with him, there was that reminder of what was missing, you know, his dad was gone. And so that time in my life was really, really hard. And I didn't realise at the time just how much of an impact it was having on me. And I think that was what really, you know, brought me to the point where my mental health was just so terrible. And I didn't even know what mental health was. I just knew I was so sad. But that's when I went to the doctor and everything kind of changed from there.
0: Yeah, wow. Um, it doesn't surprise me how you describe that when you've lived with anxiety for all those years and, and the body eventually packs it in. I, I heard uh Jason Silver described depressed from the two words, deep rest. The body eventually just says, you can't keep doing this. You, you need to stop. And that sounds, that almost sounds like what you were describing there.
1: Yes, yes. It's, um, you know, I, I ultimately led me to the work that I do because I, I was teaching at the time and I left to go and work for Beyond Blue because I thought depression, never heard of it, never. And at that stage, anxiety wasn't part of the mix and part of the conversation and mm. but the feeling of you know there was it was one day I, I look back to when I was teaching and I taught at a grammar school and we had Saturday morning sport which oh nobody much liked kids loved it but as a teacher you know you're at school earlier on a Saturday morning than any other day of the week and I loved the kids, loved sport and so I do remember waiting at the bus marking off The kids' names as they hopped on the bus and just tears streaming down my face. I could not control my tears. And the gorgeous Mm. kids, they kind of give me a little nod. They were secondary school kids, a little nod, like, "Uh uh-oh, I don't know what to do here. And I had a two-hour bus trip. And I remember sitting on the bus and having, you know, you know, when you're sort of lost in your life and what's happening that you don't have time to sort of step back and kind of have a look at it. And on that bus trip, I remember. I I remember leaning on the window, looking out the window and just going, oh, my gosh, like, let's just have a look at what's happening here. If you could tick every box of what success in your early 20s might be like, which I never had a list, but, you know, we look at our circumstances of life and we think, well, we think our circumstances of life equate to our experience of life, which is not necessarily the case. Um, You know, Peter and I had our own home. We had a puppy, a beautiful puppy. So we've got, you know, where I am coming to you from now. We still live here all these years later on a couple of acres, you know, really beautiful place where we we were starting our life together and a job I loved, fit and healthy, lots of friends, fit and healthy other than my mental health and, yeah. you know, a bit of disposable income and just kind of being able to do the things that I wanted to do with freedom and independence and and yet absolutely miserable and yeah, so that was, yeah, depression is a really difficult thing to describe, but you don't want to do anything. You're exhausted all the time and you just feel so terribly, terribly sad.
0: Mm. You mentioned there how you thought of how you should grieve and I'd love to unpack that some more because I this comes up a lot. It's like people don't know how to act and ultimately there's no right or wrong. Now, I don't know if you would have time over again whether you would have done that differently, uh, but from everything you've described, the the bottling up and the suppressing really did you no favours at all.
1: Mm. Yeah, if I had my time over, I'd ask Pete if it was okay with him. I think I'd say to him, I feel so sad and all I want to do is cry. Are you okay with that? And he would have said, of course. I know that he would have said, of course. But I put myself in his shoes and thought, gosh, if this was my dad, I wouldn't want to be comforting someone else. I mean, I would, but but I'd certainly want to be dealing with my own stuff. So I thought it's not fair of me to ask him to deal with my stuff and his stuff. Um, Yeah, so it's really nice to be able to think back and reflect on that experience and and you know to know that i mean i'm very very open with my emotions i mean i'm i'm really good at regulating my emotions but i express how i feel in appropriate places at appropriate times and mm. encourage my family and that's a lot about what i teach but i certainly didn't do it then i certainly didn't do yeah. it then and it cost me cost me a lot
0: mm the word that comes to mind is that, that you would have asked permission. And I think whether, however wording you want to put around it, I think that that in itself in a situation where you are helping someone through and supporting someone through grief is, yeah, just asking a question around what they're comfortable with and not making it about us. I, I really love that because it's almost like at a time when you don't know what to say, It makes sense. Ask a question instead.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I, had I done things differently, the experience would have been so much different. Mm. I imagine that my untreated, unrecognized anxiety would have caught up with me eventually. (laughs) Um, But I'm also, you know, I've experienced a lot of growth from that experience and with what I went through, through when I was coming out the other side of depression, I had a completely different view of the world and perspective on the world and what really was important. And that stayed with me because when you haven't got, when you haven't got your mental health, when you're in the absolute depths of despair, and I don't know a lot about grief, I'll be honest with you. I don't know a lot about, The processes and that's obviously your wheelhouse but and I and I know that when we do grieve and I've lost other people in my life and have grieved for them and come out the other side of that but with with depression it was just this real sense that what really really matters in life are the people family and friends and that's really what was a turning point for me to to go, I really need to do something to help other people who, like me, just don't understand about mental health and what they can do. Um,
0: So I I will say this, is that what you described there is coming out of the other side of depression is what most people experience when they have a, a devastating loss. It's the same thing. It's that moment of sitting there with... Those thoughts of well, what is most important, because you you quickly realise that the things that you were worried about up until that point are no longer significant. Uh, so mm. it's it's given, This is conversations give me a whole new perspective on on people coming out the other side of that those bouts of depression because it is. It's like it's it's a what you're describing is a very similar piece. Now, the other part of grief which I deal predominantly with is not so much those days afterwards but is the residual ongoing impact and, and I'm always looking for, um, for dots to join. So I'm going to get into a bit of a path here which might be a bit of a leap but uh, bear with me. So what you said you had a really good connection with your father-in-law. What, what was it about him that really grabbed you?
1: Oh, thank you for asking. Um, we well, were both nerds, <laughs> so he, yeah. So he, I mean, I, I was, I was, te- yeah, I was teaching at the time, but just, I mean, Peter's an avid reader. His dad is an avid reader, and uh, we called him Skippy uh, because he was English but had moved to Australia, so his name was Skippy, uh, and. Yeah, we, we I think we really connected on on a, a range of levels. He he was he always just seemed so pleased to see me. I think he really loved that, you know, I was a new part of the family and we could talk about the books we were reading and he had a real interest in psychology. And I remember one day he tested us all, Pete and me and um some of our friends on the Myers Briggs test. Do you, yeah. you familiar with the Myers Briggs test? Yeah. And It was fascinating. We really loved having those kinds of conversations and I was really interested in his story and his history and about the family and, you know, learning a bit more about Pete and, um, you know, where he'd sort of come from in his own, you know, family with with his dad and mum having moved from overseas. So, yeah, so we just we just kind of clicked. But, yeah, we had a lot of similar interests, I suppose.
0: Hmm. Um, and the reason I ask is, so that's, that was a similar journey for me uh, with my father-in-law, like he's, he's still with us. There's, um, there was a, a synergy there that perhaps wasn't there with my own dad and not to say that I had a bad relationship with my dad but there were some elements there of this new relationship which, which really lit me up. So is, is that a, a similar truth for you? Were there some, some disconnects with your dad that your father-in-law kind of filled that hole?
1: Yeah, I think there were definitely elements of that. I could have conversations with Pete's dad about things that weren't of interest. I, I'm not not that they weren't of interest to dad. They just weren't in his sphere, uh, the way in the the orbit that he sort of moved in. And so whilst I could talk to dad about other things, when I talked to Pete's dad, we had a lot in common. A lot of you know really good conversations about different things. Um, yeah. So he he was just it was just a really you know, great person and always made me feel extremely welcome. And yeah, I really enjoyed spending time with him.
0: Mm. So if you look at it from that perspective, it's it's someone that's sort of plugging a hole and then and then he's gone. It's uh to me, it's like that depression coming off the back of that. Yes, you had other things going on leading up to that as well, but it's almost like the the catalyst, it's like the 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 last moment to sort of tip you over the edge, right? Something so big.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think too, I I know so, I would put myself in the shoes of Pete and his mum. And so I would think I was grieving too for what it would be like if I lost my dad. Yeah. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, what would it be like for my mum to lose my dad? And so... And I, I read once because I've been to a more, you know number of funerals in my in my time, and sometimes I find myself so choked up at a funeral, and it might be a funeral of someone who I'm not close to, perhaps a friend's parent, and I'm sad for the friend. So it's not it's not the it's not the personal sense of loss for the person that's passed. It's the sadness and the grief for the per for the people left behind, and. then it makes you reflect too, doesn't it, on the the people that you've lost or that you will one day lose and what that must be like. And so I think the empath in me really puts myself in other people's shoes. And, um, yeah, so I can be at, and in fact I was at a funeral of a school friend not long after Pete's dad had passed away and I was inconsolable and I needed to leave. Because I felt just so overwhelmed with emotion. But I really knew that, you know, there was sadness obviously for the loss of this um friend, not a super close friend, but a friend from school. But it was it was just the spilling over of all this unresolved grief <laughs> from passing of Pete's dad. So um and it was a it was a, a fella actually that I'd just dated once who who had passed away, and I thought. I also was very conscious people are going to go, gee, Jody's really feeling this. Um, Meanwhile, I was in this new relationship, in a really strong relationship, and and I really was aware that people would not understand my grief and would misinterpret it uh, even as I was myself trying to understand it in that moment. So I had to go. Mm. I just had to actually leave and Mm. um, sort of try to, pull myself together to, to drive home. So. Um...
0: Yeah, that, that, makes total sense. It's, it's uh, the same reason that people can get quite upset when a famous person passes. Part of us feels like we know them, but, but it's because of our own stuff comes flooding to the surface. It's why when there's, if you've got children, when you see different instances where the, you know, the impact on children or, or the children losing someone or like that, that's like that's the one that grabs me still. We mm. have our own stuff around that and it all comes mm. flat to the surface and it doesn't matter what the circumstances and it doesn't matter whether it's appropriate or not. Sometimes it just it spills over and that's, that's pretty normal, particularly for someone uh, clearly so empathetic as yourself.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: So uh, I'd, I'd love to unpack that experience with depression and, and then coming out the other side because uh, for those who have experienced or still experiencing, this is going to be some real gold for them to, to see one that they're they're not alone in what they're experiencing but some of the key things that really helped you. So so when you go into that spiral, what's the overriding emotion? Is it one of uh, like hopelessness or, or not even that? Like, is it something worse than that? Like, how are you your emotions playing out when you're in that place?
1: Complete hopelessness and despair, a sense that life will never be any different. And knowing that there's a whole world out there waiting for you, but you just don't know how to get back to it. And my depression was so, I mean, depression is depression, it's just, absolutely horrendous and I remember being on the bathroom floor and I was living with my parents at the time so I'm a bit yeah I actually no, I was actually living at home yeah was it? that's right yes yeah, so when I was teaching it was later late oh so I'm a bit yeah I wasn't living with Peter at the time I was living at home Mm, it's a little bit blurry. Um, I just distinctly remember being at home in the bathroom, my parents' house, and just kind of curled up, literally in the fetal position on the bathroom floor, just sobbing and just wishing that I wouldn't wake up the next day. You know, if I went to sleep, just wishing I don't want to wake up. I didn't want to hurt myself. I did not. I did not want to stop living. I didn't want to kill myself, but I just didn't want to continue living with the pain and the grief and the sadness that was just so overwhelming i couldn't i couldn't ever i couldn't see any light
0: mm. and
1: i know that that was obviously a frightening thing to think that i just don't care if i don't wake up um but of course that's that was just a fleeting moment it was it was a, a real low it was really hard to be in that in that place and it, it took time to come through it with a lot of help a lot of help
0: mm. it's not unsurprising to me that it is blurry in terms of of uh, dates and where you were and what have you because that's a lot of what grief and and depression and other mental health challenges does right it, it takes away that clarity of thought and messes with memories and so on so that point you mentioned there um lots of help so was there any time there where you where you didn't feel like that even though there were people there you still felt like well these people are here but they can't even help me anyway
1: i did feel at at some point that nobody could help me Mm -hmm. i even remember um yeah, I'm I'm clear now. I was living at home. So Peter and I I remember Peter and I were engaged to be married. We postponed our wedding because of my mental health. We had bought this place, but we hadn't moved in. Yeah, it's very very blurry. The memories, a lot of memories are really difficult to call on. So, um I re- I do remember thinking and that nobody can help me and being desperate, absolutely desperate. And clutching at any store that anyone would pass me and I, I remember praying for the first time um, I'm not one to pray uh, my mum is Christian and she was she sought the support of a couple who were counsellors from her church who were actually neighbours of ours and we went and spent some time because I, I look back and I think how hellish for my parents to have me going through this as well. Like I I reflect now on just how painful and distressing and hopeless they must have felt. And I do remember having this conversation with these, these people. I still remember their names. And coming home that night and going, right, God, if you are there, <laughs> now's the time. This is it. This mm-hmm. is it. I'm reaching out to you if there's... If you're there, show me a sign. You know, that classic kind of, yeah. you know, I don't even know, come to Jesus moment I, I've heard sit on, on a movie. And um, yeah. Yeah. and I was bitterly disappointed that I didn't have any sort of epiphany or vision or change. But it's so interesting because um, I ended up meeting with the most amazing psychologist. He was my third psychologist. And we we just spent years working together on and off. On and off, on and off for years and years and years. And I remember recounting this to him. And um, no offense meant for anybody who who has you know beliefs, uh, Christian beliefs or otherwise. I full full support for anybody's beliefs. It was just weren't my beliefs. But I just was reaching for whatever would help me. And I, I said, and and I knew that my psychologist was not a believer himself and i didn't know ever know much about him but through our conversations i was i was aware of that and he he had shared that with me and i remember saying to him this and he said <laughs> makes me laugh he said how do you know that i am not the answer to your prayers <laughs> I'm, glad,
0: I'm glad you said it because it's the first place my mind went It's like it two things isn't it funny we in in moments of grief we talk to god uh, or we pray and then the solution does find us, but we attribute it to something else. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> we good. when he said that to me, and he was saying it, he, I know he was saying it tongue in cheek, but he he challenged my thinking, you know, and I said, Hmm, I guess I don't, you know, I guess I don't know. Um and yeah, I mean it it, it wasn't it wasn't his way of trying to say, you know, but by this stage I had come through so much and I was so much better as he you, you know as you can probably tell to you know for him to sort of say that to me and yeah, um yeah. but yeah yeah so it's it's yeah such a such a tough time but um I look back now you know I mean I'm open with my age I'm 48 I think every birthday is a gift and I just I live this rich life I have a lot of happiness in my life. I'm very accepting of all of life's ups and downs. I don't have to like them. I'm very accepting of what, you know, life throws at us as humans. Very, very grateful. And I look back to where I was and where I was now and I just think it just could not be too different, you know, we couldn't be further apart. The Jody that was on the bathroom floor and the Jody, you know, sitting here in front of you could not be, more different and it but it's because of that experience that I'm here with you today. So yeah it's it's quite it's quite amazing to have the opportunity to think back and reflect on it. So yeah, so thank you.
0: You're welcome. That's part of the reason for the platform is to tell people stories because someone somewhere will be listening to this and and just it'll be resonating and and giving them uh hope when maybe they haven't got any. So um Mm -hmm. Yeah, whether, whether you come from, a like you said, a religious background or, or you believe in a higher power or whatever it is, there is some kind of magic happening that is, to me, undeniable when those things happen, when we ask, whether you're just talking about your unconscious mind, when we ask and and then the answer's right there in front of us. And it's amazing what our logical brain will do to make sense of it in a way that we understand, right? It's another method we use to keep ourselves safe, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so it, you've highlighted there the importance of getting uh, support. And to me, the bit that I really picked up on is like, don't just settle for any support. If the support you're getting is not working, then keep searching and keep finding. Like I mean, if, if you had decided that you'd seen one psychologist and it didn't work and decided psychologists don't work, which I know I've heard people talk about right now, and I've tried that, it hasn't worked. It's like, you You've got to be open and seeing that there are other ways, and we're going to come to the anxiety stuff. So it'd be really interesting to hear your thoughts on some of that when we get further down the conversation, because there, I'm sure there'll be someone listening here thinking about anxiety in a different way and maybe haven't been given the answers, and you may just have that. So uh, thank you for for sharing that part of the journey. So was there was there a a moment where you kind of felt like you were out out the other side? Or was it more of a gradual where suddenly you look back and went, oh, actually, I'm not going too bad now?
1: Yeah, there wasn't a moment, nothing that comes to mind, you know, in, in this moment now. I realised through my therapy and, yes, what you just highlighted is so important that the right, it's got to be the right fit psychologist. It really does and, and it's important to persevere and ask your GP for that next referral and ask around for recommendations because I saw the first person and I was just like, could have run for the hills. The second person was recommended by a colleague and she was a dream analyst and I didn't really know that. And I just found that to be outside of my, the way I think about life. Um, I don't know much about dream therapy. It just didn't feel like it was gonna be the right fit for me. And yes, when I found the psychologist that I had for years and years and years, it was just an absolute game changer. But no, the real, it's its interesting actually Now that, now that I think a little bit more about it. I started on antidepressants. I was unable to make any change as a result of my therapy because my depression was so severe. So I took antidepressants and they had a profound effect on how I felt. So I thought, this depression thing is behind me. I am okay. I can go off my medication.
0: Mm.
1: At which point I plummeted back into depression and felt very strongly that I needed to understand it. I wanted to work through it. I didn't want to, and I, I'm i now medicated. I'm medicated now many, many years later, but I spent a long time, many, many years working with my therapist to try to understand more. I guess I felt I did feel, not I guess, I knew I felt that give me enough time and effort and hard work and I will fix this problem. I will solve this problem and not understanding not understanding much about mental health at all really. And so yeah, so that was interesting. I'm sure my psychologist um yeah, he he was extraordinary, very very supportive of my decision. And so Yeah, so in terms of an actual point, I do remember distinctly feeling one day, oh, my gosh, I feel amazing. And, of course, everything changed when I took my, well, weaned off the medication, which is important to do. But after that, when I really dug deep, when I really dug deep after sort of taking myself off and hitting the lows again, but still more functional at this point, I realised that I wasn't fulfilled professionally And I started to explore where my next professional step might be so that was quite a journey so it was quite a protracted period of time where I explored my options and as we know with purpose you kind of figure it out by doing Um, but yeah I, I do remember having this idea that everything that was once important to me before like I had, I had a coupe. I had a shiny red sports car. I had, you know, I had lots of life's lovely trimmings because I was, you know, had this great new full time job and, you know, not a lot of other things to spend my money on. And I just realized, oh my gosh, like that's just that just doesn't make you happy. That's just not what life's about. And so um, I do remember having those very very strong realizations, but the the whole journey became a real journey because. I felt that my mental health would continue to improve the the closer I got to what I felt was really um, living with more meaning and purpose.
0: I love that, uh, and I'd like to come back to that. But you have mentioned something else there that that um, I think's important for people to just be aware of as well. Is that you mentioned something there is like what was outside of how you think about life. So two things thoughts come to mind. There is we can find what works for us that does fit in with how we think about life. But then I think you could appreciate that even through that, we have to be open to doing things differently to how we've done them as well and be open to accepting some things that are outside of what our belief, current belief systems are, because otherwise, like how are we going to get different results unless we change something up?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. And, I think when, you know, we and look, you know, we we live in a world now where, gosh, you you just have to open your phone, and if your microphone's on, you know, n- the next thing you'll do, you'll find on, you know, you start talking about dog beds. That you next thing you know, you've got Instagram ads for dog beds. You know, this it's such a consumerist society, yeah. and we're we're bombarded with all of that these days. But I think, and it's it's easy for me to say, I suppose, because you know, I, I'm very privileged, you know, I do have a, a, a comfortable home and, you know, I, I understand that I, I come from a position of privilege saying that. But, And at the time I was being supported by my parents, you know, I was still trying to work and taking leave and all of that. But just the realisation that that it's not, it's just not the, the stuff that we have and sometimes we have to go through a hard experience to kind of really have a real shift in the way that we look at things, we, we absolutely do. And then the science supports that, that, you know, as long as we've got, we're psychologically safe, we're physically safe, we're fed, we're watered, we've got a roof over our heads and we've got our basic needs met and good connections, um, you could earn a million dollars over and above having all of that. And it's not going to make you a million times happier.
0: No. It's just not,
1: unless you no. spend it on experiences.
0: <laughs> yeah, or that work has a deep sense of purpose about it, which is what you touched on there. So yeah. you talked about you're doing work in the anxiety space and that's been a lifelong challenge for you. And what I know about purpose is the very thing that we've been challenged most by is the thing that we'll be best at teaching because it comes from that place of experience. So if we think back to those uh, early years, so you said like basically since the age of four, was yes. it like a separation anxiety of going to school? Was it the unknown? Like do you, do you have conscious understanding of what it was when at that age?
1: Mm, I do now in hindsight. I had a very sick tummy and so that was my first symptom because we feel anxiety in such a physical way. It's often not None. really talked about. Uh, I mean it is, but we really need to understand that the physical side of anxiety is uh, really important to pay attention to so I felt sick and it was because I know now I came from a house where my mum was highly anxious Mm -hmm. and uh, but it was a relatively peaceful home you know Uh, but going to school I was in a huge double class of preps and there was a lot of stress for the teachers and there was a lot of yelling there was a lot of tension and that classic you know, contagion effect of that stress I picked up on. And I would have had the I mean I do. I have the genetic coding. I have the inherited factors, which thirty to thirty-five to fifty percent of us with anxiety will have um inheritance will play a role, heredity will play a role. So those genes were just sitting there waiting for some somebody to flick a switch and that environmental stress was that very switch. And so I would just say to Mum, I feel I feel sick and I don't want to go to school, but mm. she sent me. I'm glad she did. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, that all makes so much sense. The other thing I know is that when you're an empath, not only are you feeling your own anxiety around that, but you are probably tuning into all those other anxious kids and, and carrying. So you, what you would do now, right, holding space for people, you're literally holding space for a whole bunch of uh, kids at the same age. Like if I look back at um, that same time and, and like all the different challenges around that time, I, being highly empathic myself, it would have been doing the same. It's it's trying to get into that pattern of managing a whole lot of other people's stuff. And I don't know if that resonates with you, but it's, um, it's something that I know that, the people I've worked with with a fair bit of anxiety, it's often been the case of the magnitude of it infinitely increased because of that, um, or, sorry, exponentially increased because of how much they were taken on from other people.
1: Yeah, one of, one of the things that I very much took on was this sense of responsibility for other people's happiness around me and that was a real weight. It was a terrible weight but also lots of anxious thoughts about if somebody's unhappy... What did I do to influence that? If they're unhappy, it must be something I did. And so, you know, at the time from the physical sense, it was the tummy aches that was the first sign. But I, I look back on various stages of, you know, childhood and adolescence and adulthood, and I can see how it's manifested. And, you know, I was prescribed a ventolin when I was a teenager because I was having what I understand now was performance anxiety playing high level sport but it wasn't understood it was thought to be asthma and so I can look back and see all the points at which I was really struggling I look back in mid-primary school I was having I have OC have struggled with OCD in the past but it's not that big an issue it's not it doesn't get in the way of my life now. I have a few little quirky things, and they're just quirky. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I, I had, but I full on OCD uh, around a certain um, thought when I was in primary school, and even then, I got taken to a got taken to a psychologist, and even he didn't understand. Like, I can only no, see no. all this in hindsight. At the time, no. you're just like, I don't know what's wrong. I'm worried all the time. I just sought reassurance all the time. I was just constantly asking my mum if everything was going to be okay and she'd just say, yep, yep. Hmm. That's how I got through life for 20-plus years. Hmm.
0: It's funny as you talk about the OCD, I I'm nodding and then going, oh yeah, I'm I'm playing with my pen and then I'm making sure it touches every one of my fingers when I touch one of them and like those sort of things when I'm watching movies or whatever. It's just um I guess it's a coping mechanism of some sort, some sort of order, but it, yeah, I mean there's lots of those different things. Just because we have elements of that doesn't mean it's a problem. It's just well, it's only a problem if it becomes a problem. Um, yeah. And you, you touched on a really important point there around uh, you can only join the dots looking back. There's a great quote from Steve Jobs where he talks about that. Like you've got to put some sort of faith or trust in the future that you'll that you'll work it out, and then you can join the dots and and make sense of it. Um, now one of those ways like making sense of it, you mentioned there's a family history. Is it something you've openly talked about with your mum about like what her upbringing was like and 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 her anxiety and how she went through all those years as well
1: oh yes we've we've talked about it a lot and it's so good because she learned she's learned a lot she's learned a lot from my experiences and um yeah she's the eldest of seven and yeah dad's the eldest of oh is he the eldest he's not the eldest but dad's one of eight so I've got a massive family and then my poor kids only have one cousin (laughs) so never mind um that's the way the Cookie crumbles sometimes, but yes. yeah, mum was um, the of seven, and there were a huge a lot of responsibilities. And her dad had OCD, but not diagnosed. So lots of light flits, oh, light switch flicking. Uh, very high expectations of order. Kids into bed early so that all the doors could be locked. And um, she only came to the realisation about her dad when we, you know, as through professionally, because my area of expertise is anxiety and I'm having conversations with her about all sorts of things all the time, OCD being one of them. And she, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: she, you know, it's sort of, you know, the right moment, the right question, the right opportunity, and you start to reflect. And, um, yeah, so growing up, and that's a thing. Some parents feel responsible and as parents we can't feel responsible for our children's anxiety because we we get dealt the cards we're dealt in terms of our DNA. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: And when it comes to anxiety, there's state and then there's trait anxiety. So in terms of our temperament, that's just, you know, the temp- our temperament is ingrained. And then state anxiety can be the anxiety that we feel in, you know, as a as a state, which can be changeable and it's completely normal in response to certain situations. It's actually there to keep us safe. Um, but when it's there's so much anxiety that it's getting in the way of daily functioning, that it's um it's a huge problem. But yeah, I I've had lots of conversations with mum, and um you know I know mum looks back and she wishes she could have somehow done things differently, but I I love to say that, you know, when we know better, we do better, how can we do things differently when we don't know differently, we just can't. She's a beautiful, loving, amazing woman and I wouldn't be who I am without her. And I thank her all the time for instilling in me a real sense of self-worth and self-confidence. And it means that despite the anxiety that I live with and the challenges, that I've had. I've been able to continue to move forward and and really make the most of it. More than make the most of it, mm. you know. It, I love my work. I absolutely love my work, and I couldn't have done what I'm doing without the way I was raised. And so I, I always say to her, she should give herself a really big pat on the back. <laughs>
0: yeah, I love that. What a gift to give your mum. And and I say that to uh, people I work with who who are feeling uh, some level of inadequacy around their parenting. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, you think of what it's given, your own setbacks in life have given you, you're just creating some cool things for your children to overcome and, and they can be the shining light for how to do that. And uh, I think when you do the work on yourself, you can't help but reflect on your, your children's journey. And, and I, I don't know if you see this in your children, but I just see, us going through what we've been through and learning all that we can, it just gives them such an incredible incredible opportunity to do it at a, at a whole other level than, than what we could ever have. And, and it's, yeah, like not your mum's fault, but, again, the fact that she did such a great job with what she was dealt is allow those next generations to have that. I think even you, know, you mentioned her dad. It's like how many people from, from her dad's generation would have had undiagnosed PTSD from from wars and and all of these different things, and it's no surprise that we're we've got some challenges now. But it doesn't mean there isn't things that can be done about it.
1: That is such an important point, and yes, I think PTSD was a huge part of it, alcoholism as well, hmm. and yeah, it it's that's you know the environment that we're raised in does have an, an influence on on us. But we're, we're so lucky because you know podcasts like this and opportunities to learn and grow and to understand ourselves I think when we understand ourselves we're in a much better position to respond when things happen in our lives Uh, but we can be very reactive can't we when um, you know just the other day just the other day something happened here and I startle very easily I am and one of the things I noticed was if I feel like if I'm in the kitchen and I'm by the pantry and a couple of people are sort of coming to go to the pantry in a, in a situation where I have a small amount of physical space about me, it's like my brain thinks I'm trapped somehow and I need to, to get out of there and it it can happen in an instant. And I can, I can um, flip, you know, very, very quickly from being cool, calm and collected into being highly anxious. And I, I just, I just said the other day to Pete, oh, I'm just realizing these things about myself. And so I can think about them. I can uh, manage where I am and what I'm doing and also do a little bit of exposure as well for myself to, you know, one of the things I've got a huge thing about kids putting their fingers in food. Like if I'm baking a cake
0: yeah.
1: and my kids stick their finger in the cake mix and, and it's because, do you think I was allowed to do that when I was a kid? <laughs> of course and, uh, of course i wasn't and my mum probably wasn't able to do that so now i said to my daughter i said right i'm working on this <laughs> i'm gonna work on it right so please yeah. just wash your hands like just do that for me <laughs> just come along and stick your finger in the batter right and and she gives me this hilarious look like she looks at me like okay mum, we're gonna do this together and she's got this kind of cheeky kind of smile like look what i'm about to do yeah. <laughs> and So we try to be a bit playful and try to just recognise, all right, what's sort of triggering me? Um, I don't necessarily understand most of why I react the way I do, but the more we understand ourselves, the more we can um, work through things and and be in a better position to respond or just not react. You know, Mm -hmm. when she sticks her finger in the batter now, We just laugh. It still makes me kind of inside go, oh. But, you know, at the end of the day, I don't want her to be baking with her kids and reacting about sticking fingers in the mixture. I mean, it's just such a little thing. But I think this kind of idea translates across, you know, big problems as well.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We be the role model rather than like trying to tell them not to do it. We just got we make changes so that we can demonstrate. I was listening to that going, oh, like the washing the hands thing, and thinking, oh, but then, but then there's soap in it, like you know. (laughs) (laughs) We all have our own triggers. Um, The 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 bit I wanted to to touch on before we talk about uh, where people can find more about you. You talked about being responsible for other people's stuff. Now. This was a real eye opener for me because I know, like, I grew up very much in that space of feeling responsible and taking on a whole lot of other people's stuff. But then when I saw it reflected back to me through my children, and one particular moment with my son really stands out when I realised he was picking a fight with me because he could tell, maybe, maybe consciously, but probably more unconsciously, that that I had some stuff that I wasn't uh, <laughs> that I wasn't dealing with, and and just being able to be aware of that and say to him. Don't don't do what I did. Do. Don't don't pick a fight with me. Like I'm I'm working through some stuff, but that's not on you, mate. That's not your responsibility. Like, is that are they the sort of conversations you've been able to have with your children, given what you now know about what you've experienced?
1: Oh, totally, totally. Really, it's so, it's such a gift to them, isn't it? When in at appropriate times, in age-appropriate ways, we can have these kinds of conversations, and for me to be able to say you know, to our daughter, Maka, and to be able to say, look, I, I, I realise this about myself. I mean, I've i only realised this in the last six weeks. I mean, I'm telling you, like, I, I just react and tell them off and say, all right, if you want to have the batter, you've got to get a clean spoon. And if you want more, you've got to get another clean spoon. <laughs> you know, like, And then, yeah, so to be able to sort of say, look, this makes me feel anxious. When, when this is happening, this makes me feel anxious. And now that I've stopped to think about it, I realise that, you know in the in the scheme of things this is not a big deal and that this is something that i can work on all with a view and i don't say this to her but all with a view of how do i want to help shape her nervous system and my mm. son's nervous system and so we do have those conversations they do know i live with anxiety they know i'm medicated for my anxiety they know that this is my life's work of course but we can have really good conversations about mental health and about if i am finding myself on on on, on the edge <laughs> on the edge because i've got deadlines um expectations if i am haven't been sleeping well if i've been traveling a lot that i can say i'm feeling really anxious so how about you guys just go out and play some table tennis. I just need 10 minutes alone while I'm cooking the meal. Or, yep, I wish we could do this together right now, but um, right now I know I'm not going to be the mum that I want to be. And so how about you start and I'll go and play with the dog, bounce the trampoline, do something. So what I'm doing is I'm trying to sort of share these ideas that when we can self-reflect and we know where we're at and we know what we need, we can get what we need and still take care of the people around us. But every now and again, I just react like I did last night. Um, Kids came with me to basketball and my daughter was spinning the ball right next to me beside the court and it was driving me nuts, like because I I was anxious that she was going to drop it, it was going to go on the court, it was going to trip someone over, it would be embarrassing and it was also just distracting and I'm just like, right, move, you know. I'd asked nicely the first time, I must admit, but I, I didn't speak to her the way I would normally. I was more firm than what I just described. And yeah, the yeah. look I gave her, oh, if looks could kill, you know. And then we hopped in the car and I said, look, I know I, probably, I know I overreacted. I know what you were doing wasn't a big deal. But in that moment, that's how it felt for me. I'm sorry I spoke to you the way I did in, in front of, you know, there was just another friend of mine from basketball mm-hmm. on the bench. Who would have seen it i said i'm sorry I, I know that you wouldn't have appreciated that um i just yeah i was just feeling anxious and so i even sometimes when we do you know are human and behave in human very human ways i think if we can say to our kids look come back from it I, i'm sorry that happened yeah, yeah. And other times we're very rightly frustrated and annoyed at them for very yeah. good reason and yeah. you know That's okay too. <laughs> That's
0: okay too. A healthy expression of uh, emotions. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's probably one of the greatest lessons for me too is that it's actually okay to admit that you weren't right and you got something wrong because we're parents and we're human and we still make mistakes, believe it or not. Us people who are helping people still make lots of mistakes as parents.
1: I know. She said to me the other day, my son doesn't like me talking about him, so I'll just, I don't really talk about him much. But she said to me the other day, she said, oh, she's 12, grade 6. Oh, it's so hard being a kid in 2022. I said, try being a parent, honey. <laughs> oh, very good. Just try being a parent. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the word that comes to mind as you you went through all of that was that that still all of us peeling back that uh needing to control our external uh world instead of just coming back to the only part we really can control which is which is self um now that's a whole other can of worms we get unpack but i do know you have to go speaking of children and go and pick them up so <laughs> yeah. could you just quickly tell us a little bit more about your two books specifically on anxiety and uh, where people can find you jodie
1: Oh, yes, yes. So uh, thanks, Ian. Thank you so much. Yes, I wrote co-wrote Anxious Kids, How Children Can Turn Their Anxiety Into Resilience with Michael Gross, uh, who's a parenting educator, so your listeners might be familiar with Michael's work. Um, and I wrote Anxious Mums, How Mums Can Turn Their Anxiety Into Strength. And I wrote that in lockdown when I was more anxious oh, than I've been in a long time. So yeah. the irony, but um, really really two really important books to support so the anxious kids is really for parents and teachers to read um to support young people that they work with right through to you know year 12 even past some parents have older kids and still get a lot out of it Um, and my podcast is well hello anxiety and that's about let's turn around and say hello and understand this thing for what it is and learn how to live life with it and so um yeah my website is Dr. Jody Richardson, and I'm on Instagram and Facebook. So, yeah, you can find me in lots of places.
0: Awesome. We'll make sure we get all those links in the notes. Uh, thank you for shining such a positive light on on this challenge that so many have and so many have experienced. Uh, I re- really appreciate you being so open with the conversation and your story as well, and thank you for having this chat, Jody.
1: Oh, and thank you for inviting me, and thank you for giving me time and space and compassion a compassionate place to to think about some things i haven't thought about for a while and and you've helped me understand myself uh, a little more as well so thank you very much for the wonderful work you're doing
0: you're you're welcome i appreciate you saying that cheers thanks i hope you enjoyed this episode of the grief code podcast thank you so much for listening please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too